Take your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Our, our focal passage for Connect Groups this week started in verse 24, I think. But we're going back to verse 16. I'll tell you why in a minute. This is the third, the third of my seven calendar years here. I mean, 2017, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, that's seven. Third of my seven calendar years here that we've baptized 10 people. Uh, that's uh, for a total of over those seven years and however many months now, um, I think it was 47 or 48 people. This is the second year in a row that we have baptized 10, which it would be 10% or more, actually more, of our Connect group attendance, which is kind of the, the, the goal. We set that goal back in 2020, right before pandemics and hurricanes messed up all those plans. Um, but uh, it, it's, that's sort of like the, the standard. If, you're, if you want to consider yourself a, a church that is doing the things necessary, you want to baptize 10% of your Sunday school and we're doing that. So we're doing that now for two years in a row, and that is a, a celebration that I wanted to share with you this morning. Baptisms, <laughs> baptisms just represent changed lives. I mean, and, and not just as if, well, you know, it, they represent changed lives, and that's 47, 48 people who have followed in obedience to Christ. Our memory verse this morning uh, this, I, I practiced it yesterday, I practiced it this morning, and I know I'm still going to mess up on it. Uh, but we're going to try it. Get out your handy-dandy cheaters. I don't have one, so I'm just going to mess up in front of everybody. Calling. Oh, is that the first word, calling? Thanks. <laughs> calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them... If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever, wants to, whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. Mark 8, 34, and 35. Oh, oh next. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I bobbled the, the, the ball there in the middle, but I, I held on to it and got it across the uh, end zone. That was a football reference, Lacey. Okay. Um, <laughs> Mark, you remember, is writing for, we are fairly certain, a Roman audience. He, he's writing in Rome. Uh, he is writing probably right around the time Peter is probably in jail, he may have already been executed for his faith. We don't know exactly sure, but it's going to be right around that time. Uh, Mark is very likely writing all this down because the preacher he's been f traveling with is in prison or dead, and he knows that uh, he's got to get this story, this gospel message uh, out that that the the apostles are they're beginning to to die off or be killed off. John would be the only one uh, at this time that's probably still alive. 
Paul may be, no, this would be a little, yeah, Paul's probably gone at this point too. So he, he knows, got to write this down, and he's writing for the audience where they live, the, the church in Rome, but not just the church in Rome, but the, the people in Rome. And we, one of our clues is actually in our passage this morning. He translates, he, he, he writes or records what Jesus said from the cross in Aramaic, but then goes ahead and translates it because he knows most of the people reading his gospel won't know what that means. So he's writing for this Roman audience, and chooses to save the greatest human confession in his gospel for a Gentile to, to, to proclaim. And, and not just a Gentile, but a Roman soldier. Now, Mark intentionally, probably, leaves out Peter's confession of Jesus as the Son of God. If you read back a few chapters, you'll, you'll see Jesus ask the question, but who do you say that I, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter's answer, as Mark records it, is, you are the Messiah. Now, if we go to, I think Matthew, maybe Luke records it as well, they will record him, the, the full statement he makes, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Mark leaves that out. Not because he's trying to be, uh, uh, not, to, to, not trying to cast Peter in a bad light. Remember, he's recording Peter's sermons. So it is very possible that some of these, uh, some of this is exactly what Peter said. Maybe this is the way Peter told the story, especially in Rome. Because he is getting the Romans, the, the Gentiles in this city, to see it from a, a different perspective, certainly than Matthew, who was writing pretty clearly to a Jewish audience. Mark's not implying here that Peter didn't say it, nor is he lying about who did. He just knows his audience. And so he saves that proclamation uh, for later. He puts it, he doesn't put it in the mouth of the centurion. He just lets that be the first time his gospel readers would have heard it. So this morning, we're going to look at the crucifixion from the perspective of this centurion that has the greatest statement of uh, uh, this greatest human statement in the gospel. Surely this was the Son of God. And we're going to look at how the, the centurion got to that phrase. How, how did he get to recognizing this, this nearly naked, beaten to a massive pulp criminal, as far as he was concerned, was the Son of God? What did he see and hear that led him up to that conclusion? Now, as we move through this passage, we, we don't know what the centurion actually participated in. It, it uses phrases like the soldiers and the army and that sort of thing. But the reason we're going back to verse 16 is because that's where we know we pick up Roman soldiers. 
They may have been around a little before in the chapter, in the earlier, earlier verses, but it says clearly, but the army, right there at the beginning of, uh, or the soldiers rather, at the beginning of verse 16. So we can, I believe we can safely assume that if he didn't participate in everything that went on, we'll talk about it as we go through it, he saw it all. So we're going to try to look this morning from his eyes as we trace the path from this early morning to uh, mid-afternoon. The question you have to ask as we move through this is, what will you do with the Son of God on the cross? Many people have answered that question by saying, well, it can't be the Son of God on the cross. Islam does not accept Christ one of the reasons being is that there's no way the Son of God would have died on a cross. It just cannot happen. And yet, for the centurion, that still creates the same amount of cognitive dissonance. Their heroes didn't die this way. The Greek mythology that became Roman mythology, because the Romans stole pretty much everything they did from the Greeks, um, they, they, they wouldn't have this idea of such a weak hero, a weak demigod, a weak god that would die on the cross. So for him to make that leap is huge. What did he see that made him answer the, the, the uh, make him see this person on the cross as something more than just a person? And then if he saw it, and we see it this morning, what will you do with that information? Let's read what Mark wrote to the folks in Rome, starting in verse 16 of chapter 15. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is, the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. They began to salute him, "'Hail, King of the Jews!' They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. When it was noon... Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. 
And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, See, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink, and said, Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who was standing opposite him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. So what did the centurion see? All this, this narrative, this, the, everything that's going on, led him at the end of the life of Jesus to say, truly, this man was the Son of God. Well, what did, we, what did he see? Well, we back up to verse 16. Verses 16 through 20, the first part of 20. He saw the mockery and torture. And like I said, we don't know what he participated in and what he just oversaw. Let's, at the very least, assume he encouraged it. But it's very likely he participated at some point. He was there. He, he, they knew enough about who Jesus claimed to be to mock his kingship. Oh, he's king of the Jews. Well, let's all bow down. Let's, let's worship this king of the Jews. Bow to the king of the Jews. Bow to the king of the Jews. If you're a fan of uh, Princess Bride, thank you. Yeah, that's the first thing that came to my mind. Uh, that, that, it was, that's the same, that's exi- exactly, bow to, oh, oh, king, we're so, oh, we're so humbled to be in your presence, king. They, they fake worshipped him. They called him, no, ma- no telling what, they hit him on the head, on the head with a stick, they spit on him. Other scriptures say they slapped him, this is where they put the crown of thorns on him to mock him. So, the, the pain of that. And what did the centurion see? Whether he was doing the hitting, the spitting, the bowing, the mock worshiping, he saw Jesus do nothing. Say nothing. Just take it. It's not likely he had ever seen, if he did this a lot, if he was kind of that, a a part of the, the contingent that took care of these things in the governor's palace, It's not likely he had ever seen a prisoner act like that, or not act like that. Just take it. No no screaming, no cursing, no, no trying to resist, no trying to fight back, just taking it. Just as we see in the garden in the previous chapter, him taking the cup and drinking it to the bottom. Centurion sees all that. So maybe that's when he starts thinking, this guy's different. We don't know. We don't have a clue. We're not even introduced to the centurion until the last verse, yet he watches. Verses 20b through 23, we see the march to the execution. They led him out to crucify him. 
He would have been whipped and beaten as he was walked. Uh, as he walked, he would have had to carry the cross piece on his shoulders, behind his neck, hands over it, maybe already tied to it. Who knows? Because they tied and nailed to it. Pushed, shoved, mopped, stuff was probably thrown at him as he walked down the street. And he was so badly abused that he couldn't carry it as far as he needed to. So they grabbed a guy, Mark says, Simon of Serene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. No, expl- no further explanation, no nothing. It's, it's widely assumed that this Simon is mentioned in Acts and that Alexander and Rufus also became followers of Jesus. That's why they just mention them by their name, but no other explanation. That's why Mark knows the name. It's as if everybody who was going to be reading this gospel probably knew who they were. But that, that wouldn't have affected the centurion. Uh, chances are Simon, who was from Serene, who had come in from a far country for the Passover week, he chances are didn't know much about Jesus. If anything, he just happened to be at the wrong place at the right time. Certainly the right time if he became a believer and his children did because of this interaction. But at this moment, probably just random guy on the street as far as we know. They get him to the place of uh, Golgotha, the, the place of the skull, and they, we assume they means the soldiers, tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh. Now, myrrh would have done little more than make the wine taste better, but it appears they thought it had a a sedative effect, a, a numbing effect on them. Probably just the wine, but you know, whatever. Jesus refused it. He refused the sedative. He refused to have the pain dulled. Now, that evening, the, the evening before, or actually probably early, early, early this morning, he was praying that he wouldn't have to go through all this, and now he is refusing anything that would make going through it easier. He knew he had to experience the whole thing. He had to drink every drop of that cup. It's probably the centurion saw that. Why would he refuse pain medicine? Why would he refuse to make this easier? He he won't fight back. He won't argue. He's just taking what we do. He's nearly dead already. Can't even carry the cross piece. And now, in order to make it all a little easier... We give him, try to give him some wine, and it, he won't take it. Well, it's certainly not like any prisoner we've seen. In the beginning of chapter 4, the centurion was there to nail him to a cross. It may not have been his hands on the hammer. If he's the centurion, he's the guy in charge. He probably had underlings there, but he was supervising. He was there. Four words in English, three words in Greek. 
That's the extent of what Mark tells us about Jesus hanging on the cross, about the experience. I mean, if, if it were the news today, we would know exactly where the nails were placed. We would have video of it, of course. We would know everything about it, but Mark says, and they crucified him. We, we have an idea of what it would have looked like. The, the crucifixion was pretty old uh, uh, form of torturous, tortuous death. Uh, I believe the Persians invented it and uh, the Romans sort of perfected it. You had three options for a shape of a cross. You could do the X-shaped cross. Shaped cross. We, we call that a St. Andrew's cross so that your arms are up here and your legs are down there and they were nailed to it. The, the second option would be a T-shaped cross, which was probably the most common uh, that you would carry the, your, your cross piece. They'd nail you to it. The soldiers would use two poles to lift you up with that and, and it ha- would have had a notch in it and it would have sat down on top of the, uh, the horizontal, the vertical piece, and that, that piece would have stayed there all the time. It would have been, uh, you would have walked by going into town, going into the gates, the electric chair just wouldn't be plugged in, basically, is what it was. It was a reminder of where you could be if you defied Rome. So it would be that T piece, but most likely what Jesus was crucified on is the cross we represent today because they hung something over his head there had to be something up here and we know they used those cross shaped crosses and that's very likely what they hung Jesus on for the most monumental event in history Mark uses three words and you wonder Why? I wonder why. And I I envision, as Mark writes what Peter says, and we don't know where Peter was at this time. Was Was he somewhere off in the distance watching, but making sure it was a safe distance that nobody saw him? Did he see it? Probably. I, th- I think he probably did. I, I, don't think, I don't think any of the disciples really could have stayed away. I, I think they were as far away as they could be and still say they were there. And Peter watches. He's already denied him. And, and in that morning, he has wept bitter tears. He's, when, when Jesus, for the last time, uh, that we know of made eye contact with Peter. Peter knows immediately, I told him I'd stay by him, and then I didn't. And he goes out and he weeps bitter tears. And I can just imagine as he preaches the message, here, 30 years later, I would imagine the only thing he could get out. And they crucified him. I can imagine that's all it would be. Because you just, 
They knew what crucifixion was. We're not as familiar. We see it on TV. They saw it live. They saw the real thing. They, they didn't need, in Rome, they didn't need a description. The readers would have known immediately everything that went into it. And they crucified him. And at this point, for Jesus, no matter what people are going to say after this, the direction is set. The, the task is being completed. There, there ain't no getting the toothpaste back in the tube at this point. This is going to end with his death. He is on the cross, and that's really all Mark needs to say. Mark doesn't record a struggle. Again, what was Jesus' response when those nails went through his wrist and went through his feet? Could, could he take that without crying out? <sighs> Maybe. Like a lamb led to slaughter, he didn't lift up his voice. It, it, it's very possible that he took it all and never uttered a sound. And they crucified him. And the centurion, standing over probably his soldiers as they nailed the hands and the feet, nailed the hands into the cross, hung him up there, shoved the feet up, probably we see him like this with his feet like that. His knees were probably bent more than a 90-degree uh, angle and probably nails through the bones. Put the ankles together, through the ankles, into the wood. And that centurion's watching and nothing from this guy. The end of verse 24, the, the soldiers divided his clothes, and they cast lots for them. See, we, we wear clothes for a little while, we get tired of them, <clears throat> we outgrow them. <clears throat> we, we sort of come close to almost wearing out a little part of it, and we give them away. And we get rid of them. Uh, clothes were way more valuable back then. You, you didn't, I mean, you got rid of it when you literally wore it out. When you could not wear it anymore, that's when you got rid of it. So here, this was part of their pay. This was their bonus pay. And they're taking what little bit he would have had. Uh, if, since he was Jewish, we, we've talked about, in, uh, you may have heard in the past, he was probably naked when they uh, crucified him. They may have had some Jewish... They, they, they didn't mind putting down revolts, but they didn't want to stir up things either. So since he was Jewish, they may have actually let him keep his loincloth just for Jewish sensibilities. We don't know. It doesn't matter, really. But everything else, these soldiers gambled for. Did the centurion win anything? Just wonder. I mean, did he... Did he do that? Or because of his position, maybe he let his soldiers do it. The, okay, yeah, I, get, I got a little higher pay grade. Uh, so y'all, sure, y'all gamble for it. I, I don't know. But he was there. He was watching. 
and maybe running through his mind, we're gambling for this guy's clothes, but he is just, you know, it's always fun with other criminals when, you know, we, we enjoy the, the, the torture when we know they're bad, but this guy's not like those guys. And then he sees that the, the charge that's hung above his head and the company he's keeping in verses 25 through 27. The Jews weren't real happy about hanging that charge above his head. They, in another gospel, they said, hang up there. He calls himself the king of the Jews. And, and Pilate says, I've written what I've written, the king of the Jews. This would have been the second time the centurion heard him called this. It was back in the palace when they mocked him they mocked him as the king of the jews so they knew what the charge was they knew what people were were accusing him of he knew what that meant as far as Pilate was concerned but there was also herod it was not that they didn't have any sort of jewish leadership so they wouldn't as long as he played nice they wouldn't have been too worried about somebody calling themselves the king of the jews because everybody knew Pilate was in charge this is the second time he's heard it, and again, he's, he's not going down the same way. There's, he might have said there's actually a more regal bearing to this guy than the other two. They hang him in the middle, which is a, quote, place of prominence, but it was probably just another form of mockery as, the, as far as they were concerned. And then we see that the two, when we, if we look a little further in, in at the second half of verse 32, that the two guys on either side, or the guys on either side, were, were mocking him too. And, and, and Jesus just hangs there quietly. You can just imagine the wheels turning on this centurion, in the centurion's head. The king of the Jews... Huh. And as he, stands, as he stands there, he sees Jewish people walking into Jerusalem. They crucified on the side of the roads, usually outside the city. They wanted it in a prominent place, so everybody coming and going would see it, so it was a deterrent to anybody who might get some ideas. So they're walking by, and people who had been in the city all week, and maybe had been in the city for three years, but especially all week, because they say... This guy said he was going to destroy the temple, which was earlier in the week, and rebuild it in three days, and yet he's on a cross. How is it? Come on, show us, show us all that temple rebuilding you're going to do. Huh? The centurion sees that the people he is king of walk by and mock him. He didn't come down, he didn't resist, he didn't argue with them. But I am the king of the Jews. None of that. See, they, they were mocking, the, the people were mocking his power. You said you were strong enough to tear this down and rebuild it in three days, and you're not even strong enough to come off a cross. So I don't, don't think that's going to work. 
But then we see the scorn of his people's leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, who would never have come out and seen anything like this go on. They would have never um, taken the chance of defiling themselves. Not the Pharisees, rather the the, uh, chief priests. They came out. The people's leaders came out, and they scorned him. The, sh- the ones who should have known better, who should have taught their people the scriptures so that they knew this was the Messiah, because let's go back 33 years when Herod asks them, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? Bethlehem, and he goes and he kills babies two years old and younger in Bethlehem. They knew all this stuff. They knew the passages. They knew the verses. They knew the prophecies. Even when he says what he says from the cross, quoting Psalm 22, they knew those things and yet they reject him. And they say, do another trick for us, monkey. Yeah, demons. Yeah, bringing people back to life. Yeah, food. Yeah, calming storms. Yeah, all. well, those aren't proof. You know what would be proof is you come down from the cross. Then we'll believe. No, they wouldn't. Because you know what? Three days later, he did come back to life, and they said, we got to cover this up. They're going to think he came back to life. Still didn't believe. Coming down wasn't his purpose. Proving to them, those people right there at that moment, was not his purpose. The people that he was the king of, they mocked his power. The scribes and uh, the chief priests and their scribes, they mocked his claimed position. You have neither the power, the people said, nor the position, the people with the position said. And the centurion's watching all this. And what does Jesus say to him? Nada. Nothing. Then at noon, it all goes dark. And it's dark for three hours. There's no known natural reason. There's, there's no eclipse. There's no nothing that would have caused this. Nope, probably wasn't a dust storm. Nope, probably wasn't a really cloudy day. Nope, it was just a miracle. And the centurion's been around long enough to know it doesn't get dark at noon without some reason. And yet these chief priests didn't believe. You know, that didn't matter to them. The darkness didn't do anything. But the darkness would have meant something to, to the centurion. He would have gone back to some of his, his Roman pagan religion, his, his polytheism, and gone, hold on, this is a bad omen. Darkness in the middle of the day, and this guy's being crucified, this guy who hasn't done all these, king of the Jews and all this, these things are beginning to add up to, oh no, what have we done? It's following orders though, right? And finally, Jesus responds. And I, I imagine here the, the centurion, as, as Jesus starts to 
take in a breath, to, to speak, to, you know, the centurion's watching closely. Did he, did he see him? Because the cross would not have been, Jesus' head would not have been much higher than probably right here. They just wanted him up off the ground enough that he couldn't, they couldn't touch the ground. So he wouldn't have been super high up. So if the centurion, as Scripture says, he's standing just in front of him, he probably would have heard the intake of breath as Jesus begins to say something. So I I can figure he was going, oh, yeah, now we're going to hear it. Now he's going to let them have it, and really they deserve it, the things they've been saying, because I hadn't seen anything from this guy that would deserve all this. Get after it, man. Let them have it. And what he hears is a prayer. Centurion may have spoken some Aramaic as a, as a, a, a soldier in Jerusalem, depending on how long he had been there. He may have spoken Aramaic. There were certainly people around that, that would have translated it for him if, in, if he didn't. And he hears this man pray, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? The centurion probably could have understood, why have y'all abandoned me? I'm your king, I I led you. if if, If the centurion's heard any stories over the last three years, I am the... Yes, he could have gotten that, but he's praying, he's talking not to the people, he's talking to God. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And even if he didn't understand the words, even if the centurion didn't understand what all the people around him misunderstood, he's calling out to Elijah, that would have at least shown him, wait a minute, he's, he's still not trying to get down. He's still not cursing the people, the, the leaders, me, the soldiers, the two guys on either side of him. And then we get to verses 37 through 39. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Now, Mark just records it as a loud cry. Could this be, it is finished? Something along those lines, some of those last words of, of Jesus, into, my hands I, into your hands I commit my spirit, it is finished. It could have been Mark just said loud cry because Mark just wasn't interested in details, right? He, he, he yelled and died. Crucifixion should have taken days. You, you suffocated, you starved, maybe birds started picking you apart. They didn't care. That, I mean, that, that was what they just, just, they wanted you to die slowly and painfully. And this guy got nailed at nine, right? And was dead at three. Nobody dies in six hours, not even after all the whippings and everything. That's just not how it works. And he watched as Jesus, seemingly probably to him, chose when to die. He yelled and breathed his last. Now, he wouldn't have known about the temple curtain tearing. 
Mark tells us that happened. We know that our way to God is opened up. But he wouldn't have known that, and he really wouldn't even have known what it meant. So, so as far as that affecting him at that moment, it didn't. He may have learned later, but right then he didn't. It was that last breath that did it for the centurion. Right? He, he saw the way he breathed his last. It's just a weird phrase. It's also a pretty clear indicator that the centurion became a follower of Jesus. Because this is, this is first-hand stuff. This is, later on, Mark or Peter or somebody talking to centurion at church one Sunday. Tell me again how you became a follower of Jesus. I was at the crucifixion. It was my men that nailed him. I saw all that stuff. I saw, I saw what happened. I saw what he didn't do. And then, then, y'all, I have seen hundreds of people crucified. Countless other executions. I've seen it all. I have never seen somebody take the last breath the way this man took his last breath. That wasn't just crucifixion killed him that wasn't just what happens when somebody dies I've seen too many that is not it and if you think I'm exaggerating uh, when Peter Jackson was shooting um, the Lord of the Rings the the third movie Return of the King uh, uh, Saruman played by Christopher Lee a very uh, long-lived <laughs> actor who had been in horror movies and all sorts of things, long acting career. Peter Jackson was directing him on what to do when he was stabbed in his back by his assistant. He said, this is the way you would die. And Christopher Lee, who had fought in World War II, was apparently a spy, though, you know, spies don't talk a lot, um, sort of James Bond-ish type, said, oh, no, 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 that's, that's not how people die when you stab them in the back. Uh, this is the way they die when you stab them in the back. They, breathe, they don't breathe, I uh, can't remember what he said now, if it's, they, I think they inhale, they don't exhale. It's a shock. <gasps> and the director, Peter Jackson, saying, no, you, oh, he said, no, no, that's not what you do. You buckle and you inhale. See, people who've seen it happen knows, know, what, know how it happens. The centurion says he breathed his last, and that's not the way you breathe when you are being killed. It's the way you breathe when you die, when you do the dying. There's just too much going on here for this to be like the guy on the right or the guy on the left. This is not the same thing. Was this, at this moment, saving faith for the centurion? I don't know. 
probably not, but I know it led to a lot of questions. You know he was going to try to find some of the disciples after this. Uh, you know, and, and what was that like? Hey, I'm looking for Peter, James, or John. Uh, I don't know who you're talking about. I ain't never heard that person before. Not mm-mm. But it was definitely recognition. And tradition in the church says he became a Christian. And I don't think you could make you could come this far and not. Truly, this man was the Son of God. Let's go back to the main idea. What will you do with the Son of God on the cross? It's just the next slide, Pat. What will you do with the Son of God on the cross? That's enough this morning. That... Those few verses, 16 to 39, is enough for you to say today, this morning, unequivocally, without a doubt, truly, this man was the Son of God. But if you've been here for the past 11 weeks, even off off and on, you've heard all of Mark's story. Most of it, you've read maybe all of it. You know all the stories, not just this moment, you know what The centurion didn't. You know what the the first readers of this gospel know, or you should. You you know that this has he has proven not just on the cross, but every day of his life to be the Messiah that was promised that would come and that would save us. And he showed us this way and that way and the other way, and he fulfilled scripture, and he was not like anybody who's ever lived before, and everything that was expected of him to be one way. He said, Nope, you've got it wrong. This is how it's supposed to be. And he blew people's minds, and he saved people from death, and he saved people from demons, and he, and he built up the poor, and he reached down for the downtrodden, and he called out the ones that would say he was, uh, that, that, that he had to have power and be this or that. And he said, no, you've got the kingdom completely wrong, and the centurion didn't know any of that, and yet he looked at the man on the cross that had just breathed his last and said, truly. This is the Son of God. So what will you do with what you now know? You've got the whole story. This is your first Sunday here. Go back and read it. Take one of those red Bibles out from underneath the seat. Take it home with you. Read Mark. Get the whole story. I think Mark... In writing to Romans, Gentiles in Rome, he was asking then, and I believe he is asking today, if the centurion can respond with what little he knew, why have you not responded when you have the whole story? At this point, You're just choosing not to. But this morning, you can choose to. To stand with the centurion today and say, truly, this man was the Son of God. And if we're right that he became a believer, I like to think he did. 
then you can stand with him today and not just make intellectual acknowledgement, but a heart response. Truly, this man is the son of God, and truly, he died for me to save me. Romans 6.13, 6.23, I don't know why. I think I'm thinking 3.16. I think I'm dyslexic in that. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. That's why Jesus died on the cross. He took the wages of sin. Not his, though. He didn't have any. He took mine and yours. When he cried out to God, why have you abandoned me? Why am I taking this on my own? Why do I get the sin of the world with no help? It was mine on him. It was yours on him. But in taking that sin, he provided the gift of eternal life. That gift comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because he took our sin, because he died on the cross, he took our punishment. But because, next Sunday we get to it, because he rose three days later and proved everything he said was true. Because not only did he bring others back to life, he did it himself. No party tricks there, y'all. You must decide. Will you follow the Son of God on the cross? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would move in hearts this morning. We ask that someone here who has not trusted Jesus as their Savior, not taken the step that Carson or Tim took, they may have intellectual knowledge, they may even in their heads give assent to, yeah, sure, he's, he did all that. He, yep, truly this is the Son of God. But they've never accepted the gift this morning. May they accept the salvation you offer. And they know if they haven't, Lord, and, and if they're unsure, convict them by your Holy Spirit that this morning they may respond in faith and follow Jesus as their Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you have a next step to take this morning. Maybe you need to take up your cross, leave your life, and follow Jesus. Maybe you need to do like Tim and Carson and follow in obedience and baptism. Or maybe it's a, a submission to God in your life that you need to do. You're a believer, but you need to submit. You need to conform your life to Him. Maybe you need to join our church. You can share any of that with us. On a connection card, you can come forward and, and tell us about your decision. Have us pray with you. You can catch us afterward, whatever you would like to do. If you're watching online, you can comment or send a message. But this is your moment of decision. This is your opportunity to worship. We're going to stand and we're going to sing. and it's a, 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 We worship with our voices. This is your opportunity to worship in your giving. If you want to use the QR code on the screen to, to give or one of the offering boxes in the back, that is also a part of your worship. But we're going to stand. We're going to do all of that. We're going to worship and we're going to let God work on our hearts so that you walk out of here this morning saying, truly, 
This was the Son of God. Let's stand and sing and do business with him this morning. Thank you.